Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Farming for Passive Income show. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. We have a special guest today, Anthony Chara. Mr. Chara is a seasoned real estate investor, an educator, a philanthropist, a family man, and he's been in the business since 1993. So he has been through a few real estate cycles. And Anthony, I'm very excited um, to have you on the show today and also talk about some of your history and some of the market cycles and some of the activity that we're seeing in the choppy waters, if you don't mind. Not at all. Thanks for having me, Casey. I appreciate it. Looking forward to helping out and helping with your your listeners. Yeah, thanks, man. Well, if you don't want mind, um, if you could just give us a brief background on your history, maybe why you started in real estate and um, yeah, just get us going. Sure. Well, way back in uh, probably the 80s and 90s, my wife and I were looking for some other alternatives because we weren't necessarily really happy with our jobs. Matter of fact, my job was actually killing me. Uh, It was literally making me sick and tired. I actually developed claustrophobia while flying on a plane because I was flying all over the place for the company I worked with. Oh, wow. And it just wasn't a very good lifestyle. So in the early 90s, we went to a Charles Givens event. That's a name that a lot of your listeners may have never heard of, but he he wrote a book years ago called Wealth Without Risk. And it was about all these little things that you could do to increase your wealth through things like uh, changing your checking your insurance every year to make sure you have the best rates and the best policy, getting zero interest credit cards for a period of time. And there was probably about 20 or 30 different things that he recommended. In the back of the book, there was a little postcard that said, if you want to learn more about real estate investing, fill out the card and send it in. So we did. We got invited to a four-day boot camp through the Charles Givens organization. That started our thirst for wanting to become passive investors and real estate investors. And it wasn't until 93 that we made the plunge. We turned, we, we moved into a larger, nicer house and then turned our first house into a rental property. Okay. And so we've been going ever since 1993. And for the next 10 years, what we did is just buy and holds because that's all we knew. We didn't know that you could do fix and flips and wholesales. We didn't know or think that you could buy an apartment building. Uh, so we did that for about 10 years until I met my next mentor, which was Robert Allen. And Robert Allen, of course, as he says, took the blinders off and uh, showed us the world of wholesaling, fixing and flipping. Uh, and of course, just buying and holding. We, we built some properties right out of the ground that were um, build to sell. So we, we built them. We partnered with the developer, built them and sold those, did very well with those. That was back in about 04, 05. So new development, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it was new development, but it was single family lots. It wasn't like it was a large mm-hmm. development. Uh, But during that process, I also met another person, a gentleman named George Antone, that he and I decided to partner and and start buying apartment buildings. So we started doing that in about 2005 and then 2006. And over the course of time, we've um, owned a little over 2,000 units. Right now, we've been selling off a lot of stuff because the prices are just so high. A lot of our investors have decided that they just want to sell and take their profits off the table. So we're down to about 250 units right now. Uh, But one of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years is that uh, investing passively or in some cases for me actively as a general partner uh, has given me the financial freedom to, I quit my job in 1997. My wife finally left hers about seven or eight years ago. And so because real estate has made me financially free at this point, what I'd like to do, and that's one of the reasons I agreed to do your podcast is because I want to help other people become financially free. 
Mm-hmm. So that brings us to where we are today. And speaking of that, you also are a founder of a mentoring program, right? Correct. I have my own mentoring program where there are people that are interested in buying apartments or other types of commercial property that I will help them through navigate through that that world. Okay. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could give us like a sneak peek or maybe just a recap of what the synopsis of that class is. If you've never invested in a duplex or a quadplex or even um, maybe a 10 unit apartment building, what should you be looking out for in your areas and what are some of the lookouts? Wow. That's, uh, I know it's, it's a, it's a full question. Yeah. We we could be here for four days as a matter of fact. Um, so there's a lot of things (laughs) you need to look for. One of the things that your listeners need to understand is that there's a, there's a different way of looking at apartment buildings, which is five units and up as opposed to a single family home. So a single family home, generally you're buying it based on comparables. This cookie cutter over here sold for $400,000. Therefore, this cookie cutter home over here is going to sell for around $400,000. And depending on whether the market's going up or the market's going down, it might sell for 405, 410, 420. It might sell for four or 390, 385, 370, depending on how fast the market's going up or down, rising or falling. So there's things that you need to look for when you're dealing with apartments and other types of commercial property. The main way that people buy these is through something called the income approach. The income approach is when you take all the income that the property generates through rents, through late fees, through collecting laundry, and then you subtract out all of your what's called your operating expenses. Your operating expenses are things like your property taxes, your insurance, the management costs, maintenance and repairs, utilities that you pay as an owner on the common areas or the, or the vacant units. And then the last is what's called replacement or reserves. And so once you take all those things out, all those daily and annual operating expenses, you end up with something called net operating income. And then as an apartment owner or an investor, what you're looking for is what kind of return would you get on that property based on what's left over? And that's kind of how you determine the price of what you're willing to pay based on the return that you're looking to get from the property. Yeah, that's that's a great explanation. Thank you for that. So when, what are some of the other metrics that you're looking for when, such as like the cap rate and the purchase price and the nuances between those two? So the cap rate is is actually that return. It's the, the cap rate, the actual definition of the cap rate is the return you get on a property if you buy it all cash. So using the explanation that I just gave, let's say you, you had a million dollars in cash and you bought a million dollar apartment building. Let's say it was only 10 units. So you buy a 10 unit apartment building for a million dollars. After you pay all your taxes, your insurance, your management, your maintenance, your utilities, replacements and reserves, and you have, let's say, $80,000 left over at the end of the year, you take your $80,000, divide it by $1 million, and that means you would get an 80 or an 8% return on your money. So that would be equivalent to taking your money, putting it in a bank, and the bank saying, we're going to give you an 8% return. Mm -hmm. Now, in today's world, right, that's not going to happen. You're not going to get an 8% return from a bank, even with the rising interest rates that are happening. Uh, You might get 2%, maybe 3% if you're lucky. But the bottom line is, let's say you got an 8% return. So uh, that tells you that your property is being sold at what's called an eight cap, because that's the the 8% return. If 
as example, at the end of the year, you only had $70,000 left over, then that property would be trading at what's called a seven cap. So 7% return, a million dollars in cash, $70,000 left over. And if you notice, none of the expenses that I talked about have anything to do with the mortgage rates either or paying a mortgage. This is assuming you're buying it all cash. Once you get a mortgage in place and you're now using leveraged money, let's say you got a 75% LTV loan, then your return should actually be higher. So ideally, right, if, if you could buy a property for a million dollars in cash and get an 8% return, but if you get a loan on the property, now you're only getting a 3% return, well, then maybe it doesn't make sense to get a loan if that's all that's left over after you pay your principal and interest payments every month. So what you're ideally what you're trying to do is use leverage to get a higher rate of return. So you're getting 8% in this example, if you bought it all cash, but using leverage where you have less money in the deal, you're looking for 10, 11, 12, 14, 15% return. And that's just based on what we call a cash on cash return. So that's your hard dollars out to buy the property and hard dollars coming back at the end of the year. That doesn't include other benefits. There's a huge amount of benefits that you get when you buy investment property. There's, there's um, your tax benefits, which is your depreciation on the property. That Right now, there's bonus depreciation that's going on through the end of this year, and then it starts to phase out in 2023 and 2024 that, that helps your uh, reduce your taxes tremendously over the next couple of years. Then, of course, you have the appreciation because all your renters who are living in the property who are helping you, you know, basically take care of the property. They're giving you enough cash flow to pay your mortgage payment so that you don't have to pay it. The, the property is naturally appreciating in most markets around the country. Plus, you also have what's called the equity buildup. So as you as you start to pay down that loan balance, now the first few years, it's going to go down very, very slowly but you're still paying down the loan balance. And at the same time, your equity is increasing because of the appreciation in the market. And this is where true wealth, especially as you're looking for right, that passive income, that passive investment, this is where true wealth is made by owning real estate because of all the benefits that you get through the tax depreciation, the appreciation. If you wanna talk about forced depreciation where you can actually, by raising the rents, the value goes up even more compared to a single family home. Because again, people like me and investors that, that work with me are looking to increase their, their passive income and the income through what the property generates, through raising the rents, controlling the expenses. Yeah, that's a really good walkthrough and unpacking that. Thanks for that. Um, the, can you touch a little bit more on the forced appreciation side? Like what? Yeah, we understand maybe raising rents, but how else can you force appreciate these types of properties? Sure. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. Um, one of the main ways that you would do it with an apartment complex is just simply by raising the rent. Uh, it's actually, you know, if, you, if your listeners want to grab a notepad and take some, some notes, this would be helpful because they, they can do some calculations. But if you have a 20 unit property and you take that 20 unit property and you decide that you're going to raise interest rates by, or not interest rates, sorry, if you're going to raise rental rates by $50 a month, which in today's market is pretty easy to do in a lot of markets all around the country. So you've got 20 units and you're going to raise the rent $50 a month per unit. Well, that's $1,000 a month in increased income, number one. Number two, that's only for one month. So then you multiply that by 12 and you end up with $12,000 in additional income. 
Now, out of the $12,000, let's say your property management company is a little on the high side and they're going to take out 10%. So right now you take that and you multiply it by 0.9 or 90%, you still have $10,800 of more income coming into your pocket. Your expenses don't necessarily go up that same amount either. So even if you raise the rent $50 a month, it doesn't mean your expenses automatically go up other than the management fee because most managers are paid based on the income that they collect. So if they did collect the full $12,000 over a one-year period, then they would take 10% out of that out, which would be $1,200, which would drop your, your take <clears throat> to your bottom line to about $10,800. So <clears throat> using our, our approach before on the value of the proper, property, what's called the income approach to valuation, if our property was in an area that was at an eight cap, where most of the properties in that area traded because the investors or buyers like me and you were looking for about an 8% return, then you take that increased income of $10,800 and divide that by 8% or 0.08, and you'd end up with a $135,000 increase in value. So in essence, that's one way that you can force the appreciation up just by increasing the income stream. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is you can't do that with single family homes, right? Because with apartments and commercial property, people are buying them because they're buying that stream of income. They want that extra value and that extra income that the property generates. With single family homes, if you raise the rent $50 a month, big deal. It's an extra $50 a month, an extra $600 per year. That's about it. The value of the property has nothing to do with the extra income that you created. It has to do with what the property next door sold for a week or two weeks or two months before that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the ways that you can increase the value through forced depreciation. A second way that you can do that is through reducing your expenses. I had some students years ago who found a property where the owner was paying $2,000 a month for landscape. And without doing any research, you don't know if that's a good price, a bad price or whatever. So they did the research and found out by talking to property managers in the market that the $2,000 a month for landscape was outrageous because they should have been paying between $600 and $800 a month. So <laughs> just by, difference. yeah, it's a heck of a lot of difference. <laughs> so just by filing, firing the landscaper and changing the landscaper, let's say they went with the higher one because they wanted a better quality landscaper. Um, you know, so they, they fire the original one, they hire the second one at $800 a month instead of $1,200 a month, or sorry, instead of $2,000 a month, right? They just save $1,200. So you go through the math again, it's $1,200 a month times 12 months. Well, that's $14,400 that they just saved, which means their NOI line just went up another $14,400. So that increased the income and the value of the property. And you don't have to split any of that with the property manager. The property manager doesn't get 10% of that. They get nothing. So now you do the same math. You take the $14,400 and you divide that by 0.08 or 8%, which is the cap rate example we've been using. Now, all of a sudden, the value of your property just went up $180,000 because you increased the income stream another $14,400. The value of the property went up over $180,000. And that's, that's one of the reasons I love apartment buildings and commercial property, because people are buying it because of the stream of income. And if you can figure out how to increase the stream of income, you've literally forced the appreciation up on the property. 
in one case by 135,000, in this case 180. So what if you did both of them? You increase the rent $50 a month and you decrease or decrease the expenses, right? $14,400 a year. Now you got a double whammy. Now all of a sudden the value of your property just went up what? Uh, $315,000. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a really good example. It, two things that I'm very curious for your perspective on within the operating expenses is the insurance and the property taxes. What are some of the nuances in those two buckets and how do you teach your students um, some of the lookouts there? Sure. Well, that's a great question. So let's talk about uh, insurance first. So with insurance, one of the things that you need to do is you do need to check your policy every year to make sure you have the best policy possible and you're paying the lowest fee possible, provided that you have good coverage on your property. So don't just go with the lowest policy. So I, I tell my students, you should always go out and get at least three comparables. So talk to three different insurance companies, but when you get the quotes back from them, you need to make sure that you're actually talking apples to apples. So one of them might be, uh, the policy might be $2,000 a year, one might be $3,000 a year, one might be 4,000. So a lot of times people will say, oh, well, I'm gonna go with the $2,000 policy because it's the lowest one. Don't make that mistake. You have to verify and make sure you have the same adequate coverage in each of those three policies. So the two biggest things that I tell my, my students that they need to be aware of, number one is, you need to make sure you have lost rental coverage. Lost rental coverage is if there's, let's say the building burns down through a covered situation. A resident is in, they're cooking something on their stove, it catches on fire, the whole building goes up. You wanna have lost rental coverage so that way the insurance company continues to pay you as if all those units are occupied. And by the way, they will only pay you on the units that were occupied at the time that the property burned down. So if you had a of one vacancy, they're not going to pay you for that one vacancy. Um, so that way, while the property is being rehabbed <clears throat> and the insurance company is fixing everything, they should continue to pay you as if that income stream is still there. That's number one. Number two, you want to make sure you have something called law and ordinance because law and ordinance can screw you up very badly. Law and ordinance, so under this fire situation, if you don't have law and ordinance, then what happens is the insurance company will come back and they will pay to have the property returned to its previous condition, which is fine. And you might say, well, isn't that the point? And it is, but wait, there's more. <laughs> here's, here's the other part where law and ordinance helps you. Let's say that something in the building changed with code. Matter of fact, I had this happen to some students because they forgot about law and ordinance coverage. And when they had a fire, the fire department came in and part of the, a lot of the damage is caused by the water, not from the smoke and the fire. So when the fire department came in, they were pulling down a lot of the, the ceiling in order to get up to the ceiling to expose it. Well, when they started to work on the property, an inspector came in and happened to look up in the ceiling and saw that the uh, the trusts were now too far apart. So the code had changed, and I think they were I think they were on like 24 inch centers, and the new code was 16 inch centers or something like that. So they had to actually add extra trusses in, well, to bring the property up to code. Well, because they didn't have law and ordinance, they had to pay for those extra trusses out of their pocket. So law and ordinance basically covers you if something changed in the code. So if the property is damaged, 
the law and ordinance will actually bring it up to full current code and you don't have to come out of pocket for anything more than just your standard deductible. That is a hot tip. Yeah. And that's one of those other things that you need to understand is, is when you're comparing apples to apples with the 2000, 3000 or $4,000 policies, what is your deductible? You want to make sure it's reasonable. You know, if you have a, a 200 unit apartment complex, $20,000 deductible is not that bad. But if you only have 10 units and you're getting a, your $2,000 policy was because you have a $20,000 deductible, that's huge. And I would not have a $20,000 deductible on a 10 unit property. I'd probably be down around the $5,000 range because you want to make sure you're going to have smaller damages, smaller things that need to be taken care of. You want to have a smaller amount of um, a smaller threshold of your um, deductible to, to overcome. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know about that law and ordinance, but um, that makes a ton of sense. Do insurance agents, are they forthcoming with that um, t- policy or is it something that you kind of have to dig and make sure you ask for within those policies? Yeah. The, the good ones do come forward with it and let you know, Hey, you need, you should really have this coverage in place and here's how much it's going to add to your policy. But sometimes you get insurance agents when you call them up and say, hey, I've got a 10 unit property. It's worth a million dollars. What's it going to cost me to cover it? And they're just going to say, well, here it is. So it may or may not cover it. Sometimes it's about what you don't ask, right? Because all of a sudden now the building burns down and you find out you've got to come out of pocket for these things that weren't covered. And you ask your insurance agents like, well, why wasn't this covered? It's like, well, you didn't ask for that coverage. So a good one will say you really need this. But sometimes... Uh, maybe if you're talking to a newer one or somebody that doesn't know better, they're just going to give you a policy because you asked for an insurance policy. So here's a policy if the building burns down. Mm-hmm. How do you think about partnerships with insurance companies? Do you do you see them more as transactional or do you see them more as long-term partnerships? Partnerships. You know, that's a great question, but it really depends on the company because a lot of companies, they pretty much only do the state that they're located in. So for with me, with all the different properties I have in multiple states, it's really hard to have that partnership, as you say, because you're not really developing that relationship. You you only have them on that one property. Uh, If they work for a larger insurance company, they might be able to pass this off to a sister company in in a different state. But most of the time, it is going to be transactional because, quite frankly, the only time you really want to talk to your insurance agency is when you buy the policy and that's it, right? You never want to have to actually put in a claim. So for us, it's mostly transactional. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. That's really good info on the law and ordinance um, section of those policies. Um, as we move into the property tax situation, um, I know it's, it's kind of a hot topic that no one's really talking about, especially as valuations um, continue to rise, even despite interest rates. Of course, cap rates are coming down nationally, it seems like, but of course, that's generalizations. Um, how do you think about um, those property taxes or mill rates as they relate to you know sale and then any refinances and things like that? How does that affect the overall um, income producing asset? Well, that's going to depend on where the property is located. And this is, this is a mistake that some people can make when they buy a property. Obviously, when you're analyzing the deal, you do want to look at what the owner is currently paying right now 
to verify that information because they're going to give, hopefully they're going to give you their, what's called their Timmer, taxes, insurance, management, maintenance, utilities, replacements, and reserves. They're going to give you those numbers. But what's more important, what the seller's paying now for property taxes or what you're going to pay once you buy the property? Obviously, it's when what you're going to pay when you buy the property. Now, some states, when you buy the property, the taxes don't go up right away. They may not go up for a year or 18 months in some cases. Most states, as soon as you buy it, boom, your taxes go up and they go up today. We've had a couple situations where the, um, some of my students have backed out a deal, specifically in Ohio, because one of the things that they found out was that somebody bought a property for this amount. They put a bunch of money into it. They increased the value to this amount. And now, right, they're still being taxed way down here, but now the student is buying it up here at this, at this amount. And what they found out was when they did the research, the taxes were going to triple based on what the seller was currently paying. And that completely changed the dynamics of the value of the property because that is now income that's gonna be reduced from what the student thought that they were going to collect by an extra two times what they were paying. So if the seller was paying $50,000 in property taxes, now all of a sudden it's $150,000 in property taxes for that property. And that lowered their NOI, their net operating income by $100,000, which reduced the value of the property by over a million dollars in this particular case. So uh, the, the example I'm citing, the students were under contract at $7 million for 139 unit property they ended up countering with the seller and dropping the price to 5 million or five and a half million, somewhere in there between five and five and a half. Unfortunately, the seller didn't agree with their valuation because they didn't seem to care that the property taxes were gonna triple uh, over the, uh, the next year as soon as they, the students bought the property. So the deal ended up falling apart. But if they hadn't done that extra step and found out what the taxes were going to be after they purchased it, they could have got into a deal and found out they're now upside down and losing money on their deal because there's a hundred extra thousand dollars. That's almost $10,000 a month going out of their income that they were projecting to have for not only themselves, but for their investors. Mm -hmm. How do you teach students the nuances between you own property, you sell property as well. So you're obviously aware of the new evaluations and the new property tax values. But on the flip side, when you're an investor buying, you know, there needs to be enough meat on that bone to make it worthwhile for both parties. So where do you kind of find that middle ground? I'm not sure I understand the question, the middle ground regarding. Well, if you're a seller, you like they didn't want to decrease their price to that five million because of the property taxes. But in their eyes, it was worth that because it was generating the net, it was generating a certain amount to basically be valued at that 7 million. So um, how do you suggest when people get into those types of pickles, um, negotiating and perhaps getting the seller to um, see their side of the story and maybe trying to make a deal happen? All right. Okay. Got it. So sometimes what you're going to find is that um, sellers specifically with commercial property can be very stubborn. And there may not be any middle ground. Uh, certainly, you can, you can try, obviously, as a buyer, you're trying to get the maximum discount possible. And as a seller, you're trying to give the least amount of discount as possible. 
Could there be middle ground? Yes. But most of the time, what you're going to find, unfortunately, is that the seller may come up a little bit and you may have to come down a lot in your expectations. Um, the, so uh, that's unfortunate because that's really how it happens most of the time. Occasionally, you will have a seller that's understanding and gets the fact that the value is going up or that the property taxes are going up tremendously. But a lot of them, they just, they just don't care. They're like, nope this is my price. You can either pay it. And if you won't pay it, there's three other people standing in line that are ready to go. And that's how hot the market is right now. So as long as the market is hot, like it is, and people are basically overpaying for a lot of properties, which is what I've been seeing the last two or three years, they're not being, buying them today based on what the property is worth today and the income that is being generated today. They're buying it based on what the income is going to be a year from now which is just flabbergasting to me, but they're willing to do it because they know that a year after that, it's gonna be even worth more and even more than that. So that's what we're running into. So you have a lot of sellers that aren't willing to budge at all, maybe a little bit, but like the example that I just gave you where we're talking about a million dollars reduction in value, they're just not willing to do that today. Now, when the market changes, because it will, there's always a pendulum. You know, sometimes the pendulum goes all the way to the right. Sometimes it goes all the way to the left. Whatever the case might be, it's going to swing from one part to the other. Right now is a seller's market and continues to be a seller's market, even though interest rates have gone up a little bit and cap rates have gone up a little bit. There's still a lot of sellers demanding their pricing and they're still getting it from people who are coming in and willing to pay them. Now, eventually, when the pendulum swings the other way and it becomes a buyer's market, then there'll be more um more, uh, more interested in negotiating in, in order to get rid of the property rather than holding on to it for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, in terms of, you know, the general market and you have a ton of experience, you've been doing this since 1993. So the environment that we're in, do you see it slowing down in the next few years um, with the market dynamics that we see? Well, it's, it is going to slow down. The question is when. So uh, we are starting to see in some areas around the country, some price drops. Uh, I've heard from one of my mortgage brokers that's in Texas that he's actually seen some prices on some complexes drop anywhere from 10 to 15% in order to get the deals done. But that may be a short-lived situation. If, the, if, if um, inflation gets under control, because right now it was in the eight or 9% range. Now I think it's dropped down to the middle sevens. If they can get inflation under control, then you're probably going to continue to see the market continue to be hot for another three or four years. If they don't get it under control and it continues at the eight to 9% per year pace, then you're gonna, you are going to see an adjustment. It's, it's not gonna continue because people like me aren't gonna be able to continue to pay based on pro forma numbers out two or three years out uh, just because things are gonna get out of control when it comes to valuations. And especially the situation we're in now where you have cap rates at such a low amount and interest rates are starting to creep up. You know, When interest rates were below cap rates, that's when you, you're getting deals done. But now that interest rates have crept up and they're about equal with, in some cases, the cap rates or the interest rates are higher than the current cap rates. Now you're talking about losing money because it doesn't make any sense for me to buy a property where I'm getting a loan at, at 6%, but the cap rate is at five. I might as well just yeah. pay, pay cash for the property and get a 5% return 
then buy it at this amount and pay 6% in interest. Yeah. So you are seeing, you are seeing things slow down a little bit over the last six months, how long that's going to last. Well, again, will depend on whether or not they get inflation under control because if inflation continues to go up, interest rates are going to go up. And if interest rates continue to go up, then in order to get those properties sold, the sellers are going to have to, in essence, raise the cap rates, which in effect lowers the price. They're, they're opposite of what most people think. So a high cap rate means high cash flow, but it also means a lower dollar value for the property. And vice versa, as the cap rates go down, the values of the properties go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. An inverse relationship, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. On the going back to the macroeconomic factors and, and the the cap rates, the cap rate and the interest rate and the relationship between the two. You know, we've been seeing some debt financing instruments, bridge loans have been very popular in the past few years. You know, how does the the new debt instruments of the last, say, four or five years um, compare versus the traditional um, 30-year amortized fixed um, rate debt? If you could explain some of that, that would be super helpful. Yeah. So a bridge loan is designed to bridge the, the gap between the purchase of the property and the takeout refinancing. And one of the reasons bridge loans have become more popular is because of what I was talking about with people overpaying for the properties. They're, they're basically looking at the value of the property today and saying, okay, well, the seller's not willing to sell it based on where it is today because they know how hot the market is. So they're basing it as if you've already bought the property and you've already raised the rents and you've already lowered the expenses 12 months from now. So a lot of people started buying up here in order to get the properties because they could see what was coming down the road with inflation. And now is still a great time to buy because of the high inflation. So it might seem counterintuitive, but because of the high inflation, rents are still going to continue to go up tremendously. In some areas, they're going to go up 8, 10, 12, 15% a year, if not more, because of what's been happening with the inflation. Because owners have to keep up with what's happening with inflation and what's going to happen with their their expenses and things like that, and, and or even their mortgage interest going up. So bridge loans became much more popular over the last three or four years because a lot of traditional banks weren't willing to refinance or finance it when it's valued here and they're paying this amount for it. So bridge lenders were. Bridge lenders were willing to take that, that chance. Of course, they're also getting a higher interest rate and they're designed specifically for bridging that gap. So what happens is over the next year, as you bring the value of the property up to the current level that you paid for it 12 months ago, now what happens is you, you 12 months into it or 18 months into it, now you go to a regular long-term financing company like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, and they're willing to now give you a loan. So they, they take out that bridge loan at a higher interest rate and give you a longer term loan that's amortized over 25 or 30 years, but generally it's going to have a balloon on it. So that loan is going to balloon in somewhere usually between five, seven, and 10 years, but you still get a much lower payment, much lower interest rate. uh, And because of that, the, the cash flow on your property then improves because of the lower mortgage payments, but the bridge loan is there. It's, it's a vital piece to again, help bridge that loan because there's not a lot of sellers in today's market that are willing to lower their prices just yet in order to, to a, re, a realistic amount, a realistic dollar amount in order to you know, help you buy it in essence. They want their profit and they want their money. And if you're willing to pay that, they'll sell it. And if they're not, they'll hold on to it for a longer period of time. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Th thanks for walking us through that. That was really helpful. Um, the, so next I'd kind of like to pivot just a little bit. We've been talking about more of the active side of investing, um, valuing properties, the really the drivers behind evaluating each property as it relates to income expenses, net operating income, and the cap rate associated um, with those drivers. Um, so that's more on the active side. If you're a passive investor, um, what should you be looking out for if I'm on the sidelines and I don't really want to go through all of the hassle of negotiating with the bank, finding the deals, um, so on and so forth. But I want to invest my money, say, with Anthony Chara. What, what should I be looking out for? Well, that's a great question. So uh, there are there are a number of things that I get on a regular basis from my investors because there are some people that I, I have a lot of students that come to my classes and at the end, they just decide, just like you said, you know what, this is too much work. I don't want to have to worry about all this stuff. I don't want to have to go out and analyze. I don't want to have to negotiate. I have to deal with brokers and sellers and all that stuff. I just want passive income. How do I do that? Well, the main four questions that I get is how much do you need? When do you need it? How safe is it going to be? What kind of, well, actually five questions. What kind of return am I going to get? And when am I going to get the money back? So in other words, how long is the investment? Um, so generally, you need to talk to your investors. And one of the things that I teach my students is because they'll say, well, what kind of returns are you giving your investors to get them excited about your deals? And what I tell them is, is I generally don't tell them what I'm going to give them as I go out and I meet new people and they're interested in investing with me. What I do is I ask them what kind of return do they want? And there's there's different ways to look at the, the return as well. There's cash on cash return because there's some people that need that hard, those hard dollars coming back on a quarterly basis. That's one other quick nuance. We never pay monthly. We pay quarterly. If the money's available, we'll pay quarterly. And at the very least, we'll pay out one time a year. But generally, we pay out four times a year in our investments because monthly is just way too much paperwork. And there's too many other ups and downs when you when you own an apartment complex with income and expenses and things that pop up. So you want to kind of even that out. So we only pay generally once a quarter. But what I do is I ask my investors, what are you looking for as far as a return is concerned? And some people will literally be in the five or 6% range. They might say eight to 10 to 12%. I've had some that say they want 20%. And then that leads you into another conversation. Are you talking cash on cash? So if somebody says they want 20% return, is that cash on cash? Meaning if, if I put $100,000 in, I want $20,000 back every year. That would be a 20% return. And sometimes they say, yeah, that's exactly what I want. Well, quite frankly, that's unrealistic in most cases on an apartment complex, even if you're doing a value add, because if you're doing a value add where you have major rehab, you're probably not going to get any cash flow at all for one to two years minimum. So for them to have an expectation of getting 20% back each year is just not going to work. But for a lot of the people that say they want 20%, I ask them, I say, well, is that cash on cash or is that total return on investment? And then that leads us to another conversation because most of the time they'll say, well, I thought it was the same thing. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. And so I explained to them that total return includes the appreciation, right? The actual value of the property going up. It includes the depreciation, the tax benefits that get passed on to our investors as long as they invest 
personally and not through a self-directed IRA or a 401k or something like that that's already tax deferred. And it also includes the equity buildup. So as you, as you pay down that loan month in and month out and year in and year out, that's also extra wealth that's being built for everybody. So when you look at all of those components, the increased income from the cash flow by raising rents, the tax deduction or depreciation, the appreciation through the normal market appreciation or forced appreciation, and then the equity buildup by paying down a little bit of the mortgage every single month, you can generally get somewhere in the 20 to 30% range, but they're not going to get it every year. They will get it on average every year, but they're going to have to wait until five or 10 years into the future when the property is either sold or refinanced in order to accomplish that task. And most of my investors, when they hear that, they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. I don't need the cash right now. I need some cash now. But yeah, if we're going to average a 20 to 25% return over the next five years, yeah, I'm good with that. So there's a lot of different nuances to the investment or the, the, the returns that an investor can get, but it's up to you to have that conversation with those passive investors to find out what their true goals are. Yeah, that's a really good point. Aligning investment investor criteria and expectations with not only the asset class, but the business plan with that asset class. Because like you said, more risk generally is more of a reward, but we also try and find, and it's our responsibility to find real risk-adjusted returns for our investors at the end of the day. Yeah. So how do you think about, um, like, there's a ton of things that go about when we're doing due diligence, you know, we could have a thousand questions when we're running due diligence. What are the, the, the top five, you would say, or just the top, the top ones that really stick out that investors are asking you in today's markets with everything going on with supply chain, with interest rates, with the money supply, what's putting a lot of your investors, um, more or less at an kind of an uneasy state of um, maybe placing or being uncomfortable placing their capital into real estate? Sure. Um, so a lot of it has to do with, uh, as kind of as you mentioned, is what's going on with the interest rates and, and when can we get the loan locked in? Because another issue that you potentially have is, is um, you get all the information from the seller today based on what's happening today. You do all your research, you find out what your property taxes are going to be tomorrow, what your insurance is going to be tomorrow. And one of the wild cards is when can you lock in the interest rate? Because you're making some adjustments and pro forma calculations based on what the interest rates are today and what the income is today based on what the seller is sharing with you. Well, if you don't have a way to lock in that interest rate, then what happens if two months later, when you actually go to close, your interest rate has gone up a half a point or a full point? That could completely change the dynamic of this transaction. And that can be a problem. So that's one of the things that can be very unnerving to our investors and even me as, as the person who's in charge of the project. There are some unknown factors that can pop up. Now, if we have the ability to lock in a loan, then we'll probably take that chance to do it. But sometimes we haven't completed our due diligence yet, our own due diligence on the project. Like in the example we talked about earlier with the insurance, we may not know a day after we go under contract that our insurance is going to go, or not insurance, sorry, um, our um, 
property taxes. Our property taxes, thank you. Our property taxes are going to triple. We may not know that for another month. Well, I don't want to lock in a loan now and the interest rate now because that's actually cash out of your pocket in order to do that. And, and then find out that a month from now, we end up canceling the deal. So we're generally going to let the, the interest rate float for that for a period of time until we're very confident that we are going to close. And then if there's an inkling that interest rates are, are going to go up, then we might lock it in. Um, but there, there's no guarantee that interest rates are going to go up. As a matter of fact, even with inflation as high as it was, and even with the Fed raising what's called their overnight rate, three quarters of a point about a month ago, interest rates did go up a little bit, but then they dropped back down to below where they were. So, uh, you know, interest rates are a funny thing. Just because the, the bank or the Fed raises what they call their overnight rate, three quarters of a point or one point in order to get inflation under control, it doesn't necessarily mean that mortgage rates are going to go up or if they do go up, if they're going to stay up. Because banks also need to make money and the way they make money is by turning those loans and making sure that there's plenty of loans out there and in use because if they're not, if they're just sitting on cash, they're actually losing money. So that's one of the big things we look at is the interest rate. The other thing, uh, you know, if you're talking about this from a from a limited partner or an investor's perspective, uh, the only other thing that I've seen that that they need to be aware of is is who's in charge of the deal. You know, what kind of due diligence do they need to do on their end on the person like me that's in charge of the deal? Have I ever been arrested? Am I an uh, embezzler? Have I been convicted of mortgage fraud? Have I, right. Am I a rapist? You know, what, what exactly is happening out there? Because there's a lot of people that will show you these proforma numbers and these great business plans and everything looks fantastic, but who are they and what's their track record and how are things going for them? So that's, yeah. that's another thing that your investors, a limited partner should be investigating is who's actually in charge of the, the investment itself. Yeah, exactly. It's a great point. I mean, we have um, a fear after Madoff, it seems like, of overcoming all of that. Th thanks, Madoff. But um, no, well, Anthony... He's just, you know, he's just one of them that got caught. There's plenty of yeah. them out there that are probably still doing it that nobody has anybody any idea right now. Yeah, that's also a really good point. Do the homework, do the background checks. I found that um, if people are forthcoming also with their website and like who they are, their story and all of that, that also like is a pretty big hurdle. Um, if they're putting themselves out there, it seems like they're, yeah, that's, you know, there's less red flags there. Um, so that's something that I also look for when I'm looking at, you know, operating partners and things like that. So. Anthony, thank you so much for the golden nuggets today. I know I definitely took a lot out of it. Um, law and ordinance, insurance policies, Timmer. Um, I thought those were really good points. Um, I have one last question, if you don't mind, and it's kind of weird, but um, what is a question that you wish I would have asked you? Hmm. Um, you know... I don't know. I mean, there's probably plenty of, I, I, I could have sat here, like I said, for four days and, and answered questions, but I don't know if there's necessarily one that um, you should have asked. All good. So it's all good, man. Well, thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And where can listeners get a hold of you? 
Oh, thanks, Casey. So they can go to my website, which is, and it, it, unfortunately, it's not a very good website, in my opinion. We've been we've been trying to get it fixed and, and fancied up here over the last couple of years, but COVID has definitely screwed that kind of stuff up. We can't seem to find anybody that wants to work anymore because a lot of times the government is paying them to stay at home and not do anything. Uh, but they can find me at successclasses.com, successclasses.com. All right. I'll also put that in the show notes and let's talk offline about, I got a great web guy um, that I can connect you with if you were interested, but anyway, to the listeners, thank you for listening in and we look forward to next time. Cheers, everyone. Have a great day. Anthony, thanks again. Thanks Casey. All right. See you guys. Bye everybody.